Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to the first podcast this year from James. Sean, thank you for joining me again. Very welcome. It's been a few weeks since we last spoke. There's been a lot going on, and I thought that we might start the year this, Sean, this year, Sean, by looking at the stuff that we discussed at the back end of last year, all the various topics, all the various sort of theoretical things that we discussed, and maybe start to bring them into a slightly more practical focus. We have discussed the value of open source intelligence. We've talked about why agencies perhaps are reluctant for a variety of reasons, good and bad, to actually take on open source intelligence on. Um, but we've also, in the similar period of time, been working really, really hard inside Jane's, our own intelligence agency, at looking at how we might better do the things that we do in terms of open source intelligence. And one of the areas that's come up from our previous discussions and recent experience from Jane's is the ability that we now have to first interconnect all of our intelligence and how that is also helping with the integration of other people's intelligence with the Jane's intelligence content. So I thought we would get started with this shift from the somewhat theoretical to the somewhat more practical and applied by looking at this topic of the value of interconnecting your intelligence and then the ability to integrate other open and closed source classified material to the sources that James brings and other people bring. So I thought we'd start there, Sean. I think you're familiar with what we've been doing at James. I know you and I've talked about uh, some of this off camera, as it were. What would be useful, I think, to get us started is just a brief reminder between us about the sorts of things that came up about the values of OSINT open source intelligence overall. So let's just talk about that briefly in terms of what we remember from there. And then why does interconnecting intelligence make it even more powerful, even more useful. So let's get started with the, the fundamentals first, Sean. Yeah, sure. I think it's a great approach, actually, because last year, I think we got into the psyche, not just us, but obviously a lot of a lot of organizations got really into the, the, the value, the potential value of open source intelligence. And there's a lot of really good think pieces out there. So I think the message is in there. The next step now, though, is, is bringing it to life in terms of what is the value and how do we optimize that value? I always used to think when I was working within Defence Intelligence Agency, when I was talking to analysts, in the back of my mind was, what's in it for you? You know, you're very busy. You've got lots and lots to do. So how do we help now within the open source intelligence? Yeah. And that's that's two, as we've spoken about many times, it's, it's two elements really, isn't it? It's the actual data itself and the richness and the the strength, the, the applicability of the data, but it's also making it as usable as you possibly can. And those things are, of course, deeply connected, but there's no point in having every single piece of intelligence or information that is relevant on a particular uh, challenge if you can't then manage it, curate it, wrangle it, as we now know, great word, um, <laughs> and then use it to, to actually deliver what you need to. So I think transferring from that theoretical approach, which we have done a few times, to be fair, into the practical, okay, how can we use it? What does it mean? And the interconnected piece, I think, is really important. You know, you know that when I ever heard the, the word uh, or the phrase all source analysis, it makes me flinch because nobody uses all source analysis, it's multi-source analysis. Right. I mean, almost by definition, you can't, you can't actually do because you don't know what you don't know. 
but you can't have an analysis today that doesn't include open source if you want to call it all source analysis. So mm -hmm. how do you bring that in? You know, how do you interconnect it into using the James vernacular and then bring it to life? Yeah, so I think that's where we're going to go. For me, my recollections of the various conversations we had uh, last year about the value of open source, it was as much about saving time for the analysts where they could rely upon what they've received from the open source environment as intelligence. It was about that provision of context that is sometimes omitted from the more exquisite, perhaps somewhat sort of drinking straw view of the world you get from classified. And it was also about the gap fill, the priming of the pump, the fundamental intelligence, that foundational intelligence, I think is what we called it in the end, um, where you can step into an arena, into an operating environment, you can step into a discussion around an equipment system, for example, and not need to do all the homework that you would otherwise need to do because you can pick it up, which goes back right to the beginning in terms of saving time. So let's then talk about when I take all of that intelligence and I start to interconnect it. And for James, that really means everything we've got now interconnected. So when I pick up a single piece of information from James, all that we know about it is available as you pull it, it all comes with it. It's all connected. It's all interconnected, to kind of phrase. Why would that in itself be valuable, Sean? What's your view of why that is intrinsically valuable to the analyst? It's so you're con it's because you're con trying to consider every facet of it, and it does depend on the nature of the question, of course. You know, very few people are going to say, right, we've seen this bit of kit on the battlefield. Tell me all about its dimensions and and you know how big it is and all the rest of it. They will want to know what what its threat is. What can it do to me? But to understand that, you've then got to say, OK, well, it's going to be associated with this formation or even this other you know, type of equipment. And that means that that is this threat. So it's joining it all up. And that can be from very tactical to strategic quite quickly. And I, I did actually look at one of your because I thought let's let's bring to life with a use case and some of your entire videos that you've been putting out there, I, I focused on one of them, a place called Rogachevo Airbase. Excuse my my Russian, but the Novaya Zemlya Archipelago, it's basically on Russia's Arctic flank in the Baltic Sea, middle of nowhere, nasty place that you really wouldn't want to be posted. So, but I thought I'd focus on that just to try and bring a use case to, to life. So, you know, if that helps, I can sort of start to bring it from yeah. one piece of intelligence and expand it from there, if that would help. Yeah, that would be useful. And for the uh, for the listener, what we'll do at the end of this podcast, Sean, is we'll put a link in for them to go and look at the video you're talking about for them to understand some of the specifics that you'll uh, you'll describe. Thank you. OK, so I looked at this place uh, on, on Google Earth and it literally is a single runway in the middle of nowhere, very cold, very inhospitable. But there was a James port, actually open source report that talked about in January 21, the establishment of a uh, MiG-31, so Foxhound deployment to establish what you and I would know as a QRA capability, so mm -hmm. reaction alert capability. Now, you know, that sort of sounds, well, you know, so what? And, and that's really where you start looking at it. So the MiG-31 is quite an old aircraft, probably goes back to the 1970s, but it has has a significant number of upgrades. It's still quite capable, as you may even remember, not that I'm saying that you were around in 1979, but, um, you know, very, very fast, supersonic, particularly if you match it with a new pretty capable air launch hypersonic missile, the Dagger, it's known, KH-47. That gives a, a real capability. Now, then you start looking, OK, so why would they potentially deploy that there? This base used to be a staging point for strategic aviation when they're doing their exercise of the nuclear triad, you know, but it's generally there's no permanent orbit there. So why would they do that? 
So you then start looking into the intelligence and then you start seeing that, well, actually, prior to that, in July 19, their uh, strategic SAM batteries, the S300s or SA20, as I know them, the Gargoyle, were replaced with the S400s, an upgrade SA20 Growler, which have increased range and mobility, far more sophisticated radar and command and control. So then you start thinking it's not just an exercise deployment. There's something going on here. So then you start sort of doing the digging. And if you interconnect just even those two, you start looking at the that that, that represents a significant increase in the Russians A2AD, so anti-access area denial capability in the Barents Sea region. Now that then starts to, to sort of think, well, this is more than just either tactical or even some, some operational stuff going on. So you start then doing even more research and you find out that in that whole domain, including the maritime domain, they've increased their presence of nuclear submarines, uh, nuclear power submarines, uh, frigates, landing ships, surface-to-air missile systems, anti-submarine warfare, all of that sort of stuff. At the same time, there's quite a big building program going on. If you then look at the command and control, which is always a really good sign that either stuff's happening or they've they've had to recast themselves. And mm -hmm. without being cynical, you know, don't organizations always rename their commands and develop them when when it's all going horribly wrong? In this case, I don't think that is true. So what was, you know, a, a quite a small command in early 21, uh, 2021, they came under what, what they then renamed the Arctic Joint Strategic Command, which basically started to bring you know, all forces under command rather than just either the Northern Fleet or, or independent. And then that was again in 21, it's consolidated with other commands to become the Northern Military District, which has put it on a par with other military districts with an expanded role of a command arms strategic formation. Now, if you start looking at that, suddenly you're talking about a layered capability with increased not only presence and capability, and so the punchline of this really, and I apologize for going on a little bit long, is I've gone from a single aircraft deployment into a realization that Russian is getting serious about the high north, as I would call it, or the Arctic. Right. And so it, it allows the analyst to just go straight through all that stuff and do it quickly. And, you know, I did this the long way. I'm old. That took just that little bit of research. And I, re and I, and I you know, recognize it's superficial. Took me probably a day and a half. Mm -hmm. When really, as an analyst, what I should be looking at is the threat, capability, plus intent, plus opportunity. So if you can automatically do the capability there and then, that gives you the analyst the time to go, right, what does this mean? How important is it? What does this mean to us? And what is the threat? So that really is the bottom line. So, so this is what I'm sort of thinking in my mind about one element, at least, of interconnected intelligence. You got one piece of kit, you connect it to others, then you start connecting it to formations and, uh, and even other domains, and you come up with a, wow, this is significant. Yeah, that's a really good example. Um, if I just abstract out of that, the bits that now with James and Tara we've interconnected, the Rogachevo Air Base analysis you've just done would start with the platform, the weapon system, then with the events data that's now being interconnected with all the other data we've got, you would start to identify the arrival of the shipping and the changes of command you talked about. So the all that would automatically start to be displayed to you in its changes. And very quickly, therefore, by simply picking up the new aircraft at that location has arrived, you would move through the various elements of the Jane's content in Jane's in Tara, and you would immediately get to the point where you have all that foundational intelligence so that you would turn quickly to the 
analysis that you've done and the deductions and insight you've created from that analysis. You took a day and a half. It'd be fascinating to do that same process with Intara, which given that it's already interconnected and you're not weaving in and out of various data sources, various data content, you would um, find it all interconnected for you automatically. I'm sure that would be an interesting uh, comparison. A day and a half by a very experienced analyst, put the same problem in front of an inexperienced analyst, see if they come up with the same sort of conclusions, or at least the same foundation intelligence uh, much, much more quickly than you're able to do with the various sources available to you. So that's a fascinating example. Now, before we step from that, one of the things that has certainly become apparent to all of us is that when you look at all the publicly available information, the commercially available information, and then of course the classified available information, these three massive buckets of information, whilst we may not ever get to the panacea of all source, for the reasons we said earlier, even multi-source now is becoming a utterly enormous task for the analysts just to manage the information, to synthesize it down in something that allows them to see the foundational flaw how do you think in that context of the publicly, commercially and classified available information, interconnecting intelligence and then being able to integrate it, what's the advantage there? Why would that be of advantage to an analyst? It's a really important point, actually, because you're getting that and it's the word that you use quite a lot and it's really brought to life. We mentioned it as well as that context. Yeah. You know, contextualizing the information by bringing all multiple sources in some of the stuff that i was looking at there were actually you know russian government announcements some of it was a little bit of imagery i don't just mean you know commercial satellite imagery i mean stuff on the ground all that sort of stuff that an analyst right now working within the intelligence community probably wouldn't consider now that's not to say that they're not going to come to the same conclusion but you know they may not come to quite the same conclusion and certainly not in the same time period. But I absolutely recognise, and nobody is saying, I, you know, I always reiterate this, no one is saying that open source intelligence will or should replace the classified stuff because sure. you know, there is some really rich stuff. There's no way on this earth that the commercial world would be able to replicate. Although there are times when I do wonder you know, how much you could get out of open source if you did the full spectrum of it, but that's a discussion sure. for another day. So yeah. that contextualization is really important and, and the gap filling. You know, and I go back to the fact that intelligence is called intelligence, not information, because there are gaps. That's the whole premise. So, you know, one of the explicit tasks for an analyst is to try and fill in the gaps. Yeah, for sure. Well, with, I... Sorry, I was just going to say with and you're not always going to have that level of assurance, another word that we use quite often that you want. But by layering it and have as much of it as you can, you can cross reference, you can validate and come up with a better idea of, of the solution. Yeah, actually, you've you actually gone exactly where I was going to about to jump in there. That cross referencing, the ability to map one set of data onto another set of data, so that you know you're looking at the same thing, is one of the many problems you've got when you're trying to integrate data. When you have, as James Intara now has, a stable and standardised data model that allows you to be confident the definition of that piece of equipment, that all that whatever it is, is consistent. Mapping data together so you can get a consolidated foundational picture is where you can really begin to reduce that significant data management and data wrangling, to use that word again, burden, that's on the analyst. They haven't just got to find the data and verify it, they've also got to collate it and they've also got to integrate it. And that's that's another area that certainly Jane's has seen a great deal of success for itself and now increasingly for our customers in terms of the ability with Jane's Intara to do that integration. 
there is a sort of subtle element to that as well and that what i found in doing this exercise was that you know you were going to get multiple versions of the truth right so i was looking at the command and control piece it was really quite confusing because there have been so many changes over so many period of time there was so much written on it obviously in the open source domain some of which was clearly you know messaging but some of it was you know good stuff that there are slight nuances and slight differences and actually getting to the ground truth in terms of what command transferred into what and then who was subordinated to what yeah. was particularly difficult and i didn't get there well not fully there anyway but yeah. by interconnecting it you can come up with that wiring diagram which we all love in the military very very fast without having gone necessarily through that yeah. right yeah. is this more important than that or, or you know does that does that cross refer to this or is it contradictory that really helps in the timeliness for the yeah and as you as you say when you've got a piece of equipment and you've got an orbat and maybe you've got a an organization that creates said equipment you know the company that builds it when you have an intelligence team like james does that is responsible for managing orbat intelligence or equipment intelligence etc all the different intelligence groups they've all got to be convinced about how they interconnect. You've all got to find a way of making sure that when I introduce this piece of equipment in this location, which it hasn't been in before, and the orbit is changing, all of that interconnectivity that is required demands those teams within James do the interconnections reliably and with a standard stabilized way, which is our data model. That is why when you pick up said initial piece of information, the aircraft at a location, and you pull then immediately into the associated capabilities like weapon systems, and then the events data bringing together all the other arriving naval equipment and the changes in C2, command and control organization, all of that being interconnected demands that it is stable and standardized and usable, quote, assured, unquote. And that is what James Intara is doing for our customers. Now, because time's going to evaporate on us, if we're not careful, let me move on to a slightly different part of why Jane's Intara and this ability to interconnect is so important, which is something we've touched on, but I'll just dig into it a bit further. I think there is another scenario within the videos. I think it's a golf maritime activity where you start to see the, yeah. the benefits of interconnecting, not just Jane's content, but other third party open source intelligence. And you can start to create very sophisticated indicators and warnings with quite a substantial amount of situational awareness information as well have you seen any of those uh, videos sean where we've started to get yeah, into i have actually yeah. I, did, I did have a quick look at that and what that brought out to me as much as anything is that you know and I, I wouldn't yet advocate using the sort of information we're taking out in in real time but no, in sure. terms of planning and in terms of dependencies so when you're starting to look at commercial shipping routes for example for ports that are dual use for you know flows of you know very topical right now energy all that helps to bring that picture into so the analyst once again can see very quickly about what's going on and come up with the so what for it. I agree with that. But I think the, the piece that I was particularly interested in is the fact that when the analyst pulls the Jane's data through Jane's Intara and they may already have on their system Hawkeye or other intelligence yeah. feeds, the ability to map it together gives them insights at that foundational level that allows them then to determine that actually there's something here I need to go and look at. The great amount of information that's now available in the open source environment, and it's of course not just James, but the fact that James and Tara can enable you to bring that in, co-locate it on a map even, and just see how these things are starting to merge, does give a level of situational awareness from 
an open source perspective, that is very, very compelling. Now, if I do that with an, a commercial source outside of the vault door, and I bring it all inside the vault, and I superimpose upon it the classified, then I think it becomes extremely powerful. And certainly our early forays with customers in the early adopter work that we're doing with a lot of these customers is starting to show exactly that, the ability to build a very sophisticated foundational intelligence set. You've touched on some some really good points there. That is probably a conversation for another day, but looking at the multi-source in the commercial domain, you're absolutely right. You know my feelings on that. You mentioned things like Hawkeye 360. You know, you've got some of the commercial satellite imagery, the electro-optical and the radar now, which is really good. You've got the RF stuff, but you've also got the sort of almost documentary stuff as well yeah, that was yeah. just written in there. You bring that all together. That is really good multi-source. And that what that does is it layers, it validates all the rest of it. The key for me and the key question, which I'm not sure we've got there yet, is at what stage do you integrate it into the secret source that is the really good stuff? Mm-hmm. Do you do it on a single source basis? So you know, commercial SIGINT, as I call it, call it, you know, the RS stuff and that sort of stuff. Do you bring it into the SIGINT world to to give them a consolidated SIGINT view and all that brings and equally with the imagery and uh, and the sort of, you know, open source intelligence operational stuff? Mm -hmm. Do you do it at the source level and then bring it together? Or do we as as a commercial community bring it all together and say, hey, we've got the answer for you. Now integrate that into your answer. And, and that gets into some really quite difficult things yeah. in terms yeah. of policy rivalries. You know, I do, again, not being rude to my colleagues because, you know, you know I, I love the organisations, but most single source organisations now, intelligence organisations, are not single source at all. They bring in other pieces of, of, of intelligence. Um, we know they do, and they, they're, they're kind of a little bit competitive. So what would they bring in to able to bring their stuff to life and make it more real? That's a huge question that I guess we could have a philosophical debate on it, and we probably do need to debate on it. But I guess the more things are integrated, the more we start using cloud-based computing, Mm -hmm. the more that discussion becomes less relevant. And as a side, I think for the intelligence community, that's something they're going to have to wrestle with sooner rather than later, actually, is that is it still relevant, and I can't believe I'm saying this, to have those delineations of, you know, the SIGINT, the IMINT, all those sort of stuff. Now, of course it is because there are special techniques, the special collection capabilities where you have to have that expertise. But at what stage do you bring it together to come up with that integrated approach? That is a philosophical question, but it's worth just exploring just a touch because for me today, you go back to things we discussed before Christmas where we talked about Uh, cultural bias and cultural resistance to the open source environment because it's all just noise, right? It's all just unhelpful noise. However, when you move into the open source intelligence realm, when you're dealing with highly relevant, accurate, and I think timely intelligence, open source intelligence being that if it is assured, then it is appropriate to bring it in, I would suggest, at quite an early stage. Now, perhaps given the cultural barriers that we've talked about in the past, We ought to be no more ambitious than to say to the analyst, when you are considering a novel problem or even an existing one, if it's novel, you can get a foundational set of intelligence that you don't have to go and build for yourself. It saves a huge amount of time just doing that. But if you already have some foundational intelligence, it can also give you a very strong triangulation, a confirmation of what you're looking at being true and or accurate. 
one of the things that I've seen done many times in that gap analysis that you're doing, trying to understand what you know and don't know, is filling the gaps can be done very quickly from open source if it's assured, if it's high quality. If it's not, then yes, it helps, but it's never going to be done at a high confidence level and therefore you're not going to, to save as much time. So it's important you go for an assured source. But to my mind, Sean, in short, I think you would do, bring it in early and allow it to be foundational rather than to bring it in later and then have all the complications of integrating it into a, a more complicated picture you've already created. I would agree with that 100% for now. Back to the trust issue, and because uh, at this end of the day, our data needs to be trusted. Commercial data needs to be trusted before it's ever going to be brought into it. And that's another philosophical debate for another day, because some of the best assessments I've seen are based on low confidence data, mm -hmm. almost by definition that we don't know what's going on. So you need somebody who's very clever and knows their business to bring them together and come up with, you know, on balance, I think this. Now, that's not a game that we want to get into yet because we are really about the foundational level stuff. The actual data, the efficacy of the data is very, very important to us. You know, do I see a time when we might be feeding stuff in? Yeah, absolutely. That, that is not assured. But I think, no, I know, and I know you're working on it. We would have to characterize that in some sort of way that, that we haven't got a high confidence level in this, but actually it's worth looking at anyway. Now, that's that's some way down the line at this stage yeah. and i'm not advocating that for now no i think the likelihood of jane's putting out raw data is not near term but putting out a data stream that is less assured is certainly uh, something we're looking at because we know that there are things that in the context of open source are valuable if they're available to you earlier because that low assurance data feed information feed to the analyst at just the right time who has the background who has the exquisite capabilities at their fingertips as well, that might just be a tipper that really moves them forward. Yeah. And it's it's not that James will always only want to be right rather than first. It's about being right and helpful, about optimizing what we do to be more available to the analyst, even if it means at the early stages of what we're feeding them, that it's a low level of assurance. And that's certainly something we're looking at. It would be remiss of me, given our roots going right back to 19th century, when you think about James used as it was then, at the basis of naval wargaming for me to not mention the other uh, scenario that I know seen in the entire videos, which is around the operational tactical planning, the uh, the red teaming work that's been done with Intara. And the reason I bring that up is because one of the other aspects of Intara, Sean, as you know, is the fact that it is agnostic to your tool set. It doesn't matter to Intara, James Intara, that you've got uh, one particular set of uh, analytical tools on or the other, it will be integratable. And the scenario I'm talking about, which you might have seen, is the South China Sea scenario, where we're looking at um, a series of threats and prioritizing those threats as a red teaming environment around a naval vessel. Um, have you seen that video, Sean? Yeah, I have. I have, actually. And and, and although it's, it is a real-time scenario, it is a training synthetic environment. Correct. And that is perfect for the James data, because James data, you know, that fundamental stuff, everybody values it and uses it because it is the standard. No yeah. question about that. So by feeding that in where there's no assumptions, there's no tweaking, shall we say, of it, you can do very, very objective. Right. What is the back to my threat equals capability plus intent plus opportunity? If that capability is there, you can then start. OK, so what have we got to counter that? What do we need to focus on? What is the greatest threat yeah. which comes in, in, into the intent? So, no, it's, it's a good example, actually. And it's also um, one that's on, um, I think it's ArcGIS, the Esri geospatial platform. Again, just to make this point that 
James and Tara is ambivalent about the tool set you've bought already and installed. It will work within it. That's why the way it's been designed. Sean, I can see that time is starting to tick away from us. So let me just um, bring this back to where we started. We came into the new year having had lots of really interesting conversations, many of them arguably somewhat theoretical. The feedback we've had from people who have uh, sent us feedback is they would like us to get more applied, more specific to real world examples. And we've done that today by looking at how Jane's in Tara is allowing Jane's to do a series of things that it couldn't do before for itself and for its customers in terms of how it interconnects and integrates and works in different tool sets. Um, the Rogachevo Airbase case study, the maritime activity in the Gulf case study, and the other one I mentioned, the South China Sea, they're all available as videos. We'll put a link in the podcast um, notes. If you were to walk away from this conversation, Sean, with just one thing that you wanted the audience to understand about the power of interconnected intelligence and the ability to integrate, what would that one thing for you, given that you've done some work recently on for a day and a half, what's the one thing that would, uh, for you, be the takeaway for interconnected intelligence? I think it's the applicability of it, um, actually. So, you know, you've, you've gone from one small tactical thing, you can very, very quickly go up to the strategic by using the tools that are available. So you don't need to do that mandrolic stuff all the time to get to where you should be doing. So in the Rogachevo case, and I, I missed my punchline really, which was that, so yeah. what does all that mean? Well, that means that the, the Russians are, for obvious reasons, increasingly um, concerned, active in the Arctic because of the you know, the, the, the trade routes that are opening, all the rest of it. So we need to pay attention to that. So what that interconnected intelligence did was allow me quickly to go from, or and it would have been significantly quicker if I hadn't done it the manual way, from <laughs> one specific event to, right, what does this mean? Yeah, perfect. And so fundamentally, it's a huge amount of time saved, but the time's only saved, which is my takeaway, if the information and intelligence using is assured and high quality. Good. Well, in coming weeks uh, and months, Sean, we have a, a range of fascinating podcasts in front of us, which will be increasingly applied and real. I think the next one we were planning to do, Sean, is, to, is it the violent extremist organisations and open source contribution to? Yes, that's right. Yeah, we've uh, we've got a, a distinguished colleague from who, who briefs at West Point, actually, talking about violent extremist organisations and how open source intelligence can help to, to look at that particularly challenging problem set. Yeah, very good. Sean, as ever, thank you for your time today. Great to speak with you, as always, and I look forward to the next time. Thanks for, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.